Welcome to Ancient Words, Modern Message. I'm your host, Roger Womble. The past is a mirror, and the more we examine what came before us, the more we can understand where we are heading. While the prophet Hosea's message to Israel was one of impending discipline and correction, it also offered the promise of restoration, reconciliation, and blessing in the future, the specifics of which we will consider together in this third episode of I Love You Truly, Studies in the Book of Hosea. And we are going to be looking this evening at the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verses 14 through 23, as we continue in our series of studies from the book of Hosea entitled, I Love You Truly. I Love You Truly. A little bit over 52 years ago, Phyllis and I were married in a church in the Kensington section of Philadelphia, It was June 15th, it was 90 plus degrees, the church was not air conditioned, and I was sweating bullets, but it was the happiest day of my life. And on that occasion, as many couples do, we exchanged wedding rings, we exchanged wedding bands. And in fact, I have on my finger this evening the very wedding band, wedding ring, that Phyllis gave me as part of the ceremony over 52 years ago. And she has on her finger this evening the wedding band that I gave her over 52 years ago. And of course, being young, uh, that is young chronologically, age-wise, and young in our faith as well, we, we face the challenge of, do we want to have anything inscribed on the inside of our wedding ring? At least at that period of time, that was a common practice. And someone mentioned to us that we should have something inscribed inside of our wedding band. And of course, the question was asked as well by the jeweler from whom we bought our wedding bands. Now, I know you think we bought our wedding bands from Israel because Phyllis has bought a lot of jewelry from Israel. No, these wedding bands did not come from Israel. They came from Jewelers Row in Philadelphia, Sansom Street, to be exact, uh, a little jewelry shop uh, run by Harry Sable. And Harry Sable's jeweler shop is the place where we pick these out. And the question was asked, what will you have inscribed? Fortunately, someone had mentioned that to us ahead of time and we were ready for an answer, with an answer. Our answer was, we want to have inscribed a phrase from 1 Corinthians 13. That is the love chapter. And in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle Paul goes through a list of the many, many things in this world, in this life, that are temporary and that will end. But he includes in that chapter this statement, love never 
faileth, as the King James Version has it. Love never faileth. And that's what is inscribed on the inside of our wedding bands. Love never faileth. It is that kind of love, which is unconditional love. Love that is not conditioned by circumstances or situations. Love that continues no matter what. That is the kind of love that God had and has for the nation of Israel. Conditional love says, I will love you as long as fill in the blank. But the unspoken part of that is, but if you do this or don't do this, or if this happens or that happens, I will no longer love you. That is conditional love. Unconditional love says, I love you, period. And that will never change. That is the kind of love that God had and has for the nation of Israel. It is the kind of love that is behind what we read in the book of Hosea. That kind of unconditional love. And as we look into this passage this evening, Hosea 2, 14 through 23, we need to begin by recalling uh, some important uh, things about the role of the Old Testament prophet. Hosea, of course, being one of the minor prophets, because his book is shorter compared to some of the major prophets, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, but this uh, prophet, Hosea, this particular book of Hosea, uh, is one that reminds us of the role of the Old Testament prophet. And that role is twofold. Uh, it is, the prophet's role is to be a foreteller and to be a foreteller. Now, usually when you and I think about prophecy, Bible prophecy, it's the second role that we think of, that we're much more familiar with. And that is the role of the foreteller. It's, it's actually predicting the future or foretelling the future. It's the prophet saying, way down the road, this is going to happen. Well, that is the second role of the Old Testament prophet, but just as important as that role of foreteller is the other role, and that is the role of forth teller. For you see, the Old Testament prophet also had the responsibility of speaking to his generation, his time, his people, not in the distant future, but the immediate present. And we see both of those aspects here in the book of Hosea. As God's spokesman to the northern kingdom of Israel, and you'll remember that, that that was the location of the ministry, the focus of the ministry of Hosea the prophet, the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember, of course, that after the death of Solomon, uh, his son, uh, who succeeded him to the throne, was Rehoboam. 
And you'll remember that there was a rebellion at that period of time that was led by a man named Jeroboam. And as a result of that, uh, the majority of the tribes of Israel, of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of those tribes actually split from the southern kingdom and formed their own kingdom of Israel in the northern part of the country, the northern kingdom of Israel. And from that time onward, uh, there was not a united kingdom. It was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And Hosea uh, is a prophet of the northern kingdom. And as that prophet of the northern kingdom, at a period of time around 750 to 715 BC, in around that period of time, uh, a major part of Hosea's job as a prophet and what we read in the book of Hosea was to, uh, to decree uh, or to decry, I should say, Israel's spiritual adultery. And that was his role as a fourth teller, to decry Israel's spiritual adultery. Now remember that God, in his, in his word, identifies himself as having the relationship, uh, a relationship with Israel that really is the relationship of a husband to a wife. Jehovah, God being the husband, Israel being the wife. And of course, what we read in the Old Testament scriptures is that that wife, that is Israel, was unfaithful to her husband, God, repeatedly. She was, in fact, involved in spiritual adultery, which means that she went after other gods, and in so doing was committing spiritual adultery. And Hosea was called to denounce the people around him in the northern kingdom for that, for their spiritual adultery. Now, the fact is that God decided that he was going to use Hosea and his marriage and his family as a picture of the adultery of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, northern and southern kingdom, but in this place, case, specifically the northern kingdom. And so Hosea was told ahead of time, we read this back in chapter one, Hosea was told ahead of time that the woman whom he would marry, her name was Gomer, the woman he would marry would be unfaithful to him. They would have three children. And those three children were to be given names that God told Hosea to give to his children, uh, two boys and a girl. And those names would actually represent what was happening in the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. And so the forthtelling part of Hosea's ministry was to denounce that terrible spiritual condition of the northern kingdom, but it went further than that. He also then began to foretell what would happen in the future to the nation of Israel as part of God's discipline of the Jewish people for their unfaithfulness and for their spiritual adultery. But it doesn't end there because Hosea also foretells that even though God 
would be displeased, of course, with his people. And even though he would discipline his people because of their unfaithfulness, ultimately, he would bring them back to himself. There would be a reconciliation in his marriage to the nation of Israel. There would be infidelity. There would be consequences to that infidelity. But then eventually there would be reconciliation and ultimately there would be restoration, a wonderful restoration of his relationship with the Jewish people. So in a nutshell, in a nutshell, that's what the book of Hosea is all about. What we want to see is from the first two verses of Hosea chapter 2 is that Israel's national history, that is the national history of the Jewish people, is actually prefigured in her ancient history. And the ancient history that I'm referring to specifically is the exodus from Egypt and their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and then eventually entering the promised land. That whole period of time in Israel's history to this day holds a special place in the minds and the hearts of the Jewish people. It is, of course, celebrated every year in the springtime at the Passover season when Jewish people today, 3,500 years after the fact, remember the exodus from Egypt. They remember the fact that their people were allowed to leave Egypt after the series of plagues. They wandered in the wilderness and eventually made their way to the land of Israel, the promised land. And so that's a very important episode in the history of the nation of Israel, but it actually is a prefiguring and gives us a picture of the history of the Jewish people overall. So look at verses 14 and 15. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where God says through Hosea, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, that is Israel, his wife, his unfaithful wife, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Akur a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. So that refers to something that happened long before in her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So immediately we get the sense that God is saying here that he wants the Jews to remember the experience of their people that took place uh, long before the day of Hosea's prophecy. Now you remember, of course, that the Jews had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. During that period of time, that period of bondage, that period of slavery, that period of oppression, they cried out to God repeatedly for four centuries. God, bring someone along to lead us out of this bondage. Let us go back to our land. And the result was, after 400 years, God raised up Moses, and you know the story. They were allowed to leave Egypt. 
They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience, even in the wilderness. But eventually, they were led from the wilderness into the land of promise. And in reality, that provides a picture of the, the history, the national history of Israel. That is, the Jewish people, as a consequence of their infidelity to God, their spiritual adultery, if you will, as a consequence of that, they have experienced chastisement. They've experienced discipline. That discipline has taken the form of, of being in foreign lands and in many, many cases being oppressed by the people of that foreign land. I need only remind you what happened to the Jews of Europe during the Holocaust. And so they are in bondage in a very real sense in a foreign land. They cry out to God as they have for centuries, long before the Holocaust. And as a result of that, God begins to work and God brings them back to their ancient homeland, the land of Israel. But it is not an easy period of time. It is like the wilderness. And in fact, the Jews who began to return to their ancient homeland in the early part of the 20th century, the early 1900s, they actually were returning to a wilderness in a very real sense. Because that's what the land of Israel was like at that period of time. But just as God took the nation of Israel through the wilderness, after he had uh, relieved them of their oppression and their slavery, he brought them through the wilderness and eventually took them to the promised land. So the picture is that ultimately God is going to lead the nation of Israel back to a relationship with him that can be really parallel to the promised land. Now, all of that's included in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, verse 14, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So God has brought Jewish people back to the land. And there I will give her her vineyards. Now, let me pause there just for a moment and say to you that I don't think that's the best translation. And there I will give her her vineyards. Let me ask you this question. Did the Jews have vineyards in the wilderness? Of course not. They were wandering. There was no time to plant vines and have vineyards. So the wilderness was not the place where they had vineyards. The vineyards were in the land of Canaan when they arrived there. And actually, the text, literally the Hebrew text, that is translated here in verse 15, and there I will give her her vineyards, the translation, the better translation is, and from there, I will give her her vineyards. In other words, from the time of wilderness and from the place of wilderness, eventually I will give her her vineyards. Then there's this statement. I will make the valley of Akor a door of hope. What is that all about? Well, you just have to go back to the book of Joshua, <coughs> chapter 7. And recall, Moses has died. Joshua has taken over the leadership of Israel. It is now his job, Joshua, 
to lead the Jewish people across the Jordan River and to begin to enter the land of Canaan and to begin to conquer the land of Canaan. The first city they encountered was the city of Jericho. Let's all sing it together. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. You know the story. And the walls came tumbling down. It was a great victory for the Jewish people because they did what God said they should do. They obeyed him in spite of, you know, walk, march around the city seven times and blow trumpets. And the last time you do, you blow trumpets and the walls come falling down and you take the city. So they were successful because they obeyed God. Next target is the not too far city of Ai. It's spelled Ai, the city of Ai. But there, there was a problem because in Ai, they were successful in their military campaign, but there was a man named Achan. And Achan disobeyed the clear statement of God that everything was to be destroyed in the city of Achan or in the city of Ai. And Achan kept things from the city for himself. The result was that God judged the Jewish people because of the disobedience of one man and one family. And that family and that man had to be punished for their disobedience. And they were taken, the family was taken to a not too distant area where there was a valley. And that valley, we don't know exactly what it was called at that period of time, but it was a valley. And in that valley, Achan and his family were stoned to death. And that was the only way that the, the righteousness of God could be upheld and the obedience of the Jewish people could be cemented. And that valley became known as the Valley of Akur. And Akur is the Hebrew word for trouble. Trouble. The Valley of Trouble. Because of what happened there in the wilderness, because of the disobedience of the Jewish people. But God says here that in the future for the nation of Israel, he's going to say, well, it's not the, it's not the, the transition process is not going to be the valley of trouble. It's going to be the door of hope. I will make the valley of Akor a door of hope. And then there's this. And there in the wilderness shall she answer as in the days of her youth. Again, I have to take a little bit of an issue with the translation, or translation here, answer. Uh, the word, the Hebrew word that's translated answer here is commonly translated sing. So we could actually say, and there, that is in the wilderness, she will sing as in the days of her youth. That, I believe, is a reference to what we read in Exodus chapter 15. You remember that right after the Jewish people left Egypt, after that 10th plague, the death of the firstborn of every household, that the Pharaoh and his army were hot on their heels. And lo and behold, the Jewish people are at the Red Sea. They got the Red Sea on one side, they got Pharaoh's army on the other, their goose is cooked until God opens the waters of the Red Sea. And they go through and safe on the other side. And the army follows and the waters close down and Pharaoh and his army are defeated. Just a couple chapters after that description, we read that Moses, right after that, Moses broke out in a song. 
And that song is recorded in Exodus chapter 15. It's called the Song of Moses. Pretty, pretty creative, wouldn't you say? The Song of Moses. And that's what's referred here to, uh, referred to here, I believe, where it says, and there in the wilderness, during her time of preparation by God, she, the nation of Israel, will sing her praises to God for what he is doing as Israel did in the days of her youth when Moses sang in the wilderness. Okay, we move quickly. And I point out to you that starting in verse 16, there is a phrase that uh, appears actually three times. Slightly different form in one case, but three times. And the phrase is verse 16, and in that day. Verse 18, on that day. Verse 21, and in that day. Consistently, when you read that phrase, in that day, in those days, on that day, it basically is taking us into the distant future. And it is telling us this is what God is going to do in the future. And so what we're going to read where those phrases appear is what God has yet to do for the nation of Israel that he has not yet done. However, we can see that what is foretold here is beginning to unfold around us and before our very eyes. But the complete fulfillment of this foretelling is yet in the future. Uh, the future, of course, is in the last days. That is the distant future, but the last days could quite well not be so very far away from us. By the way, the study of the last days is called eschatology. The uh, Greek word for last is eschatos, eschatos. And eschatology is the study of the last days. So what do we read here of what is going to happen yet in the future to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people? Keeping in mind that the first chapter of Hosea and the first 13 verses of Hosea 2 talk about God's chastisement, his disciplining of the Jewish people. And that is something that began in Hosea's day. It began when the Assyrian army swept down on the northern kingdom in 722 BC and destroyed it. It continued when the Babylonians swept down in 586 BC on the southern kingdom and destroyed the southern kingdom. But in reality, that chastisement, that disciplining is going on to this very day today. And yet, as we have seen, there is going to be a reconciliation and a restoration in the last days. And so what do, we, what do we see about that? What is Israel's future reconciliation and restoration? Well, first of all, we're told that there is going to be a reconciliation and a restoration of her relationship with her husband. Who is Israel's husband? God. So there is going to be a restoration of her relationship with God. Verses 16 and 17. And in that day, declares the Lord, you, Israel, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my Baal. 
In that day, you will call me my husband, no longer call me my Baal. The word Baal is translated often Lord. You will no longer call me Lord. You will call me my husband. Ishi is the Hebrew word, not Baal. You'll call me my husband. And that is the picture of a restoration. Then verse 17, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. You see, oftentimes in the Old Testament scriptures, Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal, Baal, refers to a false god followed by the Jewish people, worshiped by the Jewish people. In other words, they have another Lord. That Lord is not Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That Lord is another God, a false God. But what God says through Hosea is the times coming in the future when the names of all of those false gods will be removed from the mouth and the memory of the Jewish people and will be remembered no more. Then look at verses 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Betroth you to me. It is as if God is saying, I married you. I made you my wife, Israel. You were unfaithful to me. I set you aside. I separated from you. I disciplined you. I chastised you. And then I brought you back to myself. And now you are betrothed to me as a faithful wife in justice, in righteousness, in steadfast love, in mercy, and in faithfulness. So that's in the future. The second thing is the experience of Israel in the land. The experience of Israel in the land. Jews are coming back to the land of Israel. But this is just the beginning. This is the unfolding of God's plan and purpose. What lies in the future for Israel is much more than what we see now. First of all, it's peace and security. Not something that Israel has had a whole lot of being back in the land. Notice verse 18. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. So that even means that God is going to change the natural, uh, the natural order of things in Israel, and there will be peace and security between the Jews in the land and nature. I think the reference here is to the hostility of the beasts of the field, the hostility of the birds of the heaven. And we're not talking here about robins and chickadees. We're talking about birds of carrion those who eat the remains of dead bodies, the birds of the air and the creeping things of the ground. That gives me the creeps to even hear that. But in that period of time, there will be peace and security. Then I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I remind you that with all of the talk about peace in Israel, peace will not come until Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. And then there will be real peace. And then finally, in uh, verse, uh, not finally, I should say verses 21 and 22, there is prosperity. 
And in that day, I will answer, declare the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. What is that all about? Well, there's a chain here that you can actually see. And the idea is this. In that day, God says, I will answer from heaven. Who will I answer? Well, I will answer the heavens. That is the atmosphere. And the atmosphere is going to be asking God for rain. Remember, rain is really important in Israel. Remember that during the Feast of Tabernacles, just concluded recently, there is prayer regularly for the winter rains. And so the atmosphere is asking God in heaven for rain. Now, the reason why the heavens are asking that is because they have to answer the earth. You see verse 21? I will answer the heavens, and they, the heavens, will answer the earth. Well, what is the earth asking the heavens, the atmosphere? The answer? Hey, it's pretty dry down here. We need rain. And so the atmosphere says to God, we need rain. And God says, okay, I'll give you rain. The atmosphere gives rain, and the earth says thank you for that. But the earth is actually answering, verse 22, the grain and the wine and the oil, the crops. They're saying to the earth, hey, we need a little bit more moisture down here. Can you give us a little bit more? And the earth says, well, I have to ask the atmosphere. And the atmosphere says, I have to ask God. And God sends the rain. The rain pours on the earth. The earth waters the wine, the grain, the oil. And then there's this. And they will answer that is, the grain, the wine, and the oil, they will answer Jezreel. What's that? Jezreel, remember, is the name of Hosea's first son. God says, you're going to have a son with that wife who's going to eventually be unfaithful to you, and you're going to name that son Jezreel. The word Jezreel means to scatter, to scatter. And when God says that back in chapter one, he is saying to Israel, I am going to scatter you to the nations of the world. And Hosea, your firstborn, your son, is going to be a message to the northern kingdom that they're going to be scattered and dispersed in defeat. And so, but here, the, the word Jezreel can not only mean scatter, it can also mean to sow, like a uh, a farmer in that day would have taken a bag of seed, whether it was grain seed or olive seed or grape seed, and he's scattering it, but he's actually sowing. And so we have verse 23, I will sow her. So in other words, Jezreel is the scattered seed. And the scattered seed becomes the wine, the grain, and the oil that asks the atmosphere for rain, and the atmosphere asks God for rain. But God says here, I am going to sow Jews for myself in the land. And then we close with this. I will have mercy on no mercy. Do you remember this, the name of the daughter of Hosea back in chapter one? Her name was Lo Ruchamah, and that's Hebrew for no mercy. God said, you're going to have another child from this woman who's going to be unfaithful to you. And I want you to name her Lo Rochamah, 
no mercy. Because I'm not going to have any mercy on the northern kingdom when the Assyrians come in to judge you. But here, God says, I will in the future have mercy on those who in the past I said, I will have no mercy. And then I will say to not my people, you are my people. Remember the name of the third child of Hosea? A boy, Lo-Ami was his name. Not my people. Back in chapter one, God said to Hosea, name your third born, not my people, because these people have turned their backs on me. They've acted as if they're not my people. And so I'm going to pull away from them and act like they are not my people and I'm not their God. But the time is coming in the future when I will say of the Jewish people who are back in the land, you are now my people. And they will say, you are my God. That, my friends, is a picture of unconditional love. And we're going to see that depicted even more in the next portion of our study as we see that fleshed out in the family of Hosea. But I want to close by just reminding you of this that God's unconditional love for the Jewish people is the same kind of love that he, God, has for us who are his people. For us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. God has for us that same kind of unconditional love even when we don't love him, even when we are unfaithful to him, he continues to love us. He may discipline us as he did with Israel to bring us back to himself, but he still loves us. So I thought it might be a good idea to close this evening by reminding you of something Paul says in the book of Romans chapter eight. The first verse 28 is one that I know you, you're familiar with. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, for them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Do you know who the them are there? us. We're the ones. Sometimes people stumble over this and say, well, what do you mean elected? Look, if you know Christ as your savior, you're part of the elect. You've been called by God to have a relationship with him. And what does that mean? Well, verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And then these wonderful words that I want you to take with you this evening, especially because we don't know what's waiting for us out there. But we do know that God loves us unconditionally. And nothing but nothing but nothing can separate us from God's love. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. It seems like we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 
For Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Love never fails. And when God says to us, I love you truly, he means it. And what a blessing it is to have that promise. Thanks for listening to Ancient Words, Modern Message. You can expect a new episode every other Monday, so please join us again. Ancient Words, Modern Message is supported by Hebrew Christian Fellowship. To learn more about our ministry or to ask a question, contact us at hcfellowship4819 at gmail.com. If you know someone who might be interested in this teaching, please share it with them. And please consider leaving a review of what you've heard on Apple Podcast. Your input helps us make our program even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for Ancient Words, Modern Message, scroll down until you see Write a Review, and tell us what you think. Ancient Words, Modern Message is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. And I'm your host, Roger Womble reminding you that the Word of God is living and active. Until next time, showers of blessings on you and those you love.